EM Cases EM Quick Hits podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. First up, we have Salim Rosé on the HALTA trial. That's TXA for Unstable GI Bleeds. Now, it seems like TXA has been the flavor of the past couple of years for just about everything from trauma to epistaxis to homoptysis. But the question is, does it work for GI bleed? Let's find out. Hey, EM Cases listeners, this is Salim Razai back at you again with another Best of Rebel EM. This past month, we covered a paper called the HALTIT trial, looking at tranexemic acid in acute GI bleeds. Now, there's a myriad of pharmaceutical options, including PPIs, somatostatin analogs, antibiotics, as well as blood products that can be instituted as part of the acute resuscitation of these patients. Now, the role of tranexemic acid in resuscitation of this condition is really unknown. It has become one of the darling medications of emergency medicine with numerous indications, minimal side effect profile, and a low cost. TXA works by inhibiting blood clot breakdown. It has been shown to decrease death from bleeding in other conditions such as trauma and postpartum hemorrhage, but there's very limited evidence for its use in GI bleed. A systematic review and meta-analysis of seven randomized trials with just over 1,600 patients showed a reduction in all-cause mortality. However, the individual trials were small and prone to a myriad of biases, making these conclusions hypothesis-generating at best. The paper we're going to be covering today is by the HALTIT trial collaborators, effect of high-dose 24-hour infusion of tranexemic acid on death and thromboembolic events in patients with acute gastrointestinal bleeding, HALTIT, an international randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial just published not too long ago in The Lancet 2020. The clinical question the authors are trying to answer is, does IVTXA reduce five-day death due to bleeding in adult patients with acute GI hemorrhage compared to placebo. Now, as I stated before, this was an international multi-center randomized placebo-controlled trial in 164 hospitals in 15 countries. Patients were randomized to one of two groups, either the tranexemic acid group, which was a loading dose of one gram of tranexemic acid in 100 mLs of 0.9% sodium chloride over 10 minutes, followed by a maintenance dose of 3 grams of TXA added to 1 liter of isotonic IV solution infused at 125 milligrams per hour for 24 hours, or matching placebo. And the primary outcome was death due to bleeding within 5 days of randomization, and there was a myriad of secondary outcomes. The inclusion criteria for this study were simple and to the point. Old enough to be considered an adult and significant upper and or lower GI bleed defined as risk of bleeding to death, which they had four clinical criteria, hypotension, tachycardia, signs of shock, likely to need transfusion, urgent endoscopy, or surgery. Now, I told you this was a large trial. This was over 12,000 patients that got randomized to answer this one question. Each group had about 6,000 patients. Approximately 90% of patients had an upper GI bleed. 55% of patients had a suspected variceal bleed. And only 9% of patients were anticoagulation. When we look at the five-day mortality due to bleeding, which was the primary outcome, it was 4% with TXA. And I hope you enjoyed that dramatic pause. It was also 4% with placebo. So not statistically different. Now, they broke this down into subgroups trying to find some signal of benefit here. They broke this down by timing of medication given, bleeding location, variceal or liver disease or not, using a rock all score to increase or decrease severity. And they also looked at death due to bleeding or rebleeding at different time points. And in all subgroups, there was no statistical difference. There was zero benefit from tranexemic acid in acute GI bleeding. 
Now, there was one signal of harm here that is worth mentioning, and that is venous thromboembolic events, so DVTs or PEs. In the TXA group, there was 48 patients, or 0.8%, that ended up having a VTE. And in the placebo group, it was only 26 patients, or 0.4%. And this was statistically significant with a number needed to harm of 250. Now, I have to say, this is probably one of the best done randomized clinical trials I have read in a while. It's First of all, it's the largest randomized clinical trial trying to answer the question of tranexamic acid for acute GI bleed. Randomization was well done with patients, caregivers, and outcome assessors being blinded to allocation. The groups were evenly balanced in terms of all their baseline and clinical characteristics. They used a modified intention-to-treat analysis, excluding patients who did not receive a dose of the allocated treatment. They had excellent follow-up and obtained primary outcome data for all but three patients in the TXA group. Now, there's a few points worth mentioning. As I told you, this was a very well-done study. The first is is that if we look at the time from onset to randomization being less than or equal to three hours, it was only achieved in about 16% of patients in both groups. Most patients were actually greater than eight hours in approximately 50% of both groups. But if we look at the subgroup analysis of patients looking at less than or equal to three hours versus greater than three hours since time of onset, there was no statistical difference in the primary outcome. So for those people out there who believe that this medication should be given in three hours or less, they didn't find a difference in this study when they broke it down by those times. The other thing I'm going to say here is that as opposed to trauma and postpartum hemorrhage, the exact timing of GI bleeding is more difficult to ascertain. Additionally, most patients present more than three hours after bleeding onset all of which could result in a lack of benefit in TXA compared to placebo. And as a matter of fact, if we look at the time from onset to administration of either TXA or placebo, on average in this study, it was about 20 hours. The next thing I want to say here is that when we look at somebody bleeding from a single vessel, like a GI bleed, versus a trauma patient who has injury to soft tissue and microvascular structures, The pathophysiology is completely different, and therefore, we may not expect to see a difference with GI bleeds as compared to trauma patients. So it's something that's important to keep in mind. So let's get to the bottom line here. This is a very well done, large, multi-centered, randomized controlled trial of TXA versus placebo for acute GI bleed. The results demonstrate no benefit of giving TXA on five-day mortality in patients with acute GI bleed and a potential small signal of harm with increased venothromboembolism and seizures. TXA should not be recommended at this time for patients with acute GI bleed. Well, there you have it. Despite seven mediocre trials showing potential benefit of TXA for acute GI bleeds, this really well-done, huge RCT showed zero benefit and maybe a bit of harm too. So think twice about reaching for TXA the next time you're faced with an unstable GI bleed patient. Okay, next up, we have our pediatric EM educator extraordinaire, Sarah Reed, who's going to update us on the main episode podcast we did a few years back on pediatric DKA. And this is timely because we've got an upcoming main episode podcast on adult DKA coming out soon. In 2015, Sarah Curtis and I did a podcast with Anton on pediatric DKA. And we talked about cerebral edema, being super careful with fluid, and we stressed that you should use an algorithm for DKA in kids because it's different than in adults. We also talked about the fact that a lot of the treatment recommendations are based on small retrospective studies. So in 2018, we got the first RCT on fluid and DKA in kids. And you might have heard about this study because it was definitely one of the practice-changing articles of 2018. And due to this study, the treatment of pediatric DKA has changed. So I thought I would just talk about that study and then introduce the new TREK DKA algorithm. So this is a PKARN study by Cooperman et al. and was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in June 2018. PKARN is a pediatric emergency medicine research network in the U.S. and you might know them from that PKARN head injury rule that helps us decide which kids are at low risk of a clinically important traumatic brain injury. So this is a multi-center study that looked at almost 1,400 episodes of DKA in kids under the age of 18 with a mean of 11 years of age, and the kids were randomized to four different treatment arms. Fast fluid resuscitation with normal saline, 
fast fluid resuscitation with half normal saline, slow fluid resuscitation with normal saline, and slow fluid resuscitation with half normal saline. The FAST protocol was a 10 cc per kilo bolus plus another 10 cc per kilo bolus, both with normal saline, followed by replacement of a 10% fluid deficit plus maintenance over 36 hours with either normal saline or half normal saline depending on the arm. The slow protocol was a 10 cc per kilo bolus with normal saline, followed by replacement of a 5% fluid deficit plus maintenance over 48 hours with either normal saline or half normal saline. The outcomes they were interested in were a drop in GCS to less than 14 during treatment, clinically apparent cerebral injury requiring an intervention, worsening memory that was measured during treatment, and then measures of working memory and IQ post-recovery. The bottom line from this study is that there was no difference between the groups, implying that the rate and the type of fluid does not matter in kids with DKA in terms of their neurological outcomes. So there's a few things to highlight from the study. The first is that kids with a GCS less than 11 were not included because they'd already met the study outcome. The vast majority of the patients in the study had a GCS of 15. The mean pH was 7.16, so that means that there were a fair number of patients with severe DKA. And the last thing is that all of the point estimates favored the FAST protocol with half normal saline. Other recent research suggests that the cerebral injury in pediatric DKA is due to cytotoxic and then vasogenic edema. So that means that the injury is related first to hypoperfusion and then a reperfusion injury. So the primary insult is probably due to dehydration. So the results of this new study suggest that giving more fluid is safe and that we shouldn't restrict IV fluid like we've been doing before. And this has led to really a sea change in the treatment of pediatric DKA. So at TREC, we developed a new DKA algorithm that reflects the new international guidelines and was built with input from nurses, pharmacists, pediatric emergency physicians, endocrinologists, and ICU docs from across the country. We collaborated with the Canadian Pediatric Endocrinology Group, and they endorsed the protocol. And I thought I'd just go through it briefly with you, talk about the rationale for some of the decisions we made, and it's available free at trek.ca. So the top part of the protocol is the same as what we discussed in the original podcast. The initial investigations are the same. The stratification of mild, moderate, and severe DKA is the same. And we included a bit of a reminder about HHS, but that still remains a very rare diagnosis in peds. The changes I really wanted to highlight for you are related to the fluid resuscitation. So the initial decision point is whether you think the child already has signs of cerebral injury. Most patients in the PCARN study had a GCS of 15, and remember that those with a GCS less than 11 were excluded. So we decided to still be really careful with anyone with a GCS less than 14. So in this case, you can bolus 10 cc per kilo if you think there are signs of hypoperfusion. And that can be repeated times one if there's persistent hypoperfusion. But then you really should speak to your referral site about the need for further boluses. And otherwise, you would start maintenance fluid. So that corresponds to 60% of the fluid rate that is listed in the rehydration table in the algorithm. If the patient does not have signs of cerebral injury, they get a 10 cc per kilo bolus over 30 minutes. So that means all of those patients will get at least one bolus. And this bolus can be repeated if there are signs of hyperperfusion, such as tachycardia. So this will lead most patients to receive a 20 cc per kilo bolus, like in the FAST protocol in the PCARN study, since most of them will be tachycardic and we on purpose set the bar pretty low for hypoperfusion. After bolusing with the normal saline, the IV fluid is calculated using that rehydration table with the patient's weight. And this corresponds to a 10% fluid deficit plus maintenance replaced over 36 hours. And that's just like in the FAST protocol in the study. For now, we decided to use normal saline. The rest of the protocol is what we discussed in the 2015 podcast, adding in dextrose as the serum glucose falls, adding in 40 millimoles per liter of KCL as long as the potassium is less than 5 and the patient has voided, and starting that IV infusion of insulin after one hour of IV fluids. There was a little discomfort with switching to the 0.45 normal saline despite those point estimates that favored hypotonic fluid in the study. So the compromise is that there's a stage two protocol that's currently under development by Dr. Sarah Lawrence, which is going to address the ongoing care of these patients. And these will recommend a switch to hypotonic fluid after six hours of IV fluid. So stay tuned for these. Thank you very much. 
So uh, the bottom line when it comes to fluid management in pediatric DKA is that we no longer have to be so judicious with fluid boluses and that regardless of their fluid status, you're pretty safe to give a 10 cc per kilogram normal saline bolus over 30 minutes and if they remain hypoperfused after that, to repeat another 10 cc kilogram normal saline bolus. After that, follow the protocol and get help from your referral center. All right, next up, we've got CGEM's Just the Facts series with Hans Rosenberg discussing POCUS for shoulder dislocations. Now, I've just got to give you my take on this topic. You'll notice that we barely talked about POCUS in our two-part mega podcast on shoulder injuries with Aaron CL, and that's because I don't personally think there is much of a role for POCUS as long as you do a really good history and physical and know when to order axillary view x-rays and interpret them properly. Maybe POCUS is useful when you're in the midst of reducing a shoulder dislocation under procedural sedation and you're not sure if it's fully reduced or not. That's my take. Let's hear what CGEM has to say about POCUS and shoulder dislocations. And Dr. Rosenberg will be speaking with Dr. Tara Don, an emergency physician from Dalhousie University. This is quite a new topic for me, and I assume most of our audience, so let's jump right into it. Classically, we have been used to clinical exam and x-rays to diagnose shoulder dislocations. However, posterior shoulder dislocations are much trickier. Can you tell us a little bit more about the difficulty of diagnosing posterior shoulder dislocations? Yeah, for sure. So, Posterior dislocations are basically a lot less common than anterior dislocations, which does create a bit of a challenge. So they really only make up about 2% of all dislocations. So we see them a lot less commonly. On clinical exam, they present a lot less obviously as well than anterior dislocations, particularly because they don't create the classic squared off appearance of the shoulder. And in larger patients, it can be even harder to pick this up clinically. In terms of x-rays, The best view to pick up a posterior dislocation is a true axillary view, but often this isn't feasible for most patients because they need to be able to abduct their shoulder into about 70 to 90 degrees, and that's often too painful. So alternatively, you can get an oblique or scapular Y view, which is where you get the x-ray beam to shoot along the long axis of the scapula, but these views can still miss um, a significant number of posterior dislocations. So Unfortunately, because of the challenges with diagnosis, many posterior dislocations are actually missed when they initially present, and it's thought that up to as many as 50 to 70% of them actually can be missed. This delay in diagnosis uh, can lead the patient ending up to need an open surgical reduction when they eventually do get diagnosed, and it can also predispose them to chronic shoulder issues, unfortunately. So these are hard to diagnose by our classical means. So what are our alternative to x-rays? Yeah, so traditionally, the main alternative to x-ray when you're worried about a posterior dislocation would be CT scan. But many people, uh, myself included, work at places where you don't have 24-7 access to CT scanner. So for example, one of the departments I work in in Halifax, it's difficult to get a CT scan overnight if it's not for something life-threatening. So deciding on who needs to come back in the morning for a CT to rule out a posterior dislocation could be a bit tricky for me. But luckily, um, as mentioned in this article, I don't need to do that because I have another tool available, which is ultrasound, to rule out a posterior shoulder dislocation. And what is the role of point-of-care ultrasound? Can you describe to us how it's performed? I know there's obviously limitations to describing it, but uh, and then we can all refer to your article as well. Sure. Yeah. So point of care ultrasound, it's a great bedside tool that you can use. The easiest and best studied approach for shoulder ultrasound is the posterior approach. And so to perform this, you place the probe on the back of the patient's shoulder in the transverse orientation. So the beam would be parallel with the ground. You shoot forward basically just under the scapular spine at its lateral edge, like right near the, the edge of the shoulder. Um, in this view, you can see the humeral head and the glenoid at their articulation. In in a normal shoulder, they line up. In a dislocation, you'll see the translation of the humeral head in relation to the glenoid. And so if it's an anterior dislocation, the humeral head will be pushed anteriorly. And so if you're looking from the back of the shoulder, that means that the humeral head will be in the far field of your ultrasound image. 
and in a posterior dislocation, the, the opposite would be true. So the humeral head would be pushed posteriorly and you'd see it in the close field of your ultrasound image. And these distances, luckily, they're not subtle. And so usually it's about two to three centimeters translation if, the, if there is a dislocation there. So it's pretty easy to see on ultrasound. Another thing that's important to mention is just the probe selection as well is important. So you can use either a linear probe or a curvilinear probe. And the decision should be made based on the patient's body habitus. So if you have a small, thin patient, a linear probe works best. But if you have a larger patient with more muscle or adipose tissue, then a curvy linear probe is, is the better choice. So this sounds like a pretty simple approach. Even somebody who's a POCUS amateur like me could do it. What is the sensitivity and specificity of POCUS for diagnosing uh, posterior shoulder dislocation? Yeah, so um, there's been three recent studies looking at this. These studies were all pretty small and combined had about 250 patients. But they did demonstrate that the posterior approach had 100% sensitivity and 100% specificity for detecting shoulder dislocation. So it's pretty good. And my last question for you is, are there any other uses for POCUS in the assessment of shoulder dislocations? Yeah, so we've been talking mostly about using POCUS for diagnosing shoulder dislocations, but you can also use it during your reduction attempt or attempts. And so, I mean, I'd love to be able to say that with every single shoulder reduction that I've done, I felt a convincing click just as the shoulder goes back into joint. But honestly, there's, you know, sometimes that it's not that clear. And so... Using ultrasound, you can use it at the bedside to confirm your reduction if, if, if you've had a tough case, and that'll save your time of having to send the patient back to x-ray just to show that their shoulder is still dislocated. Perfect. So those are some excellent tips. Thank you so much for your time, and thanks to everyone for listening. And please make sure you check out Just the Facts, point-of-care ultrasound in the management of shoulder dislocations. Thanks again. Talking about RNCL and orthopedic emergencies, we're now going to hear from Dr. CL, the master of orthopedic EM, on the pearls and pitfalls on diagnosing and managing Lisfranc injuries, which is included in the EM Cases Digest Volume 1 on MSK Injuries and Trauma. That's the free ebook you can get from the sidebar on the EM Cases site. Oh, and talking about Aaron Seyal, he's going to be one of about a dozen faculty teaching at the 6th Annual EM Cases course on February 6th and 7th, 2021. Now, if you haven't been to the course before, day one is flip classroom, small group, roundtable discussions with your favorite EM Cases guest experts. And day two is a mix of high-fidelity simulations and rapid procedural skill stations. There will, of course, be some extra surprises thrown in, and we'll be taking every precaution to keep everyone safe from COVID. Now, the faculty is going to be an amazing lineup. We have Andrew Morris, ID guru, and Sarah Gray, ED intensivist, teaching about pneumonia in the COVID era and the crashing pneumonia patient. We've got Kirsten DeWitt, world-leading researcher on PE, and Maria Vankovic, master educator, teaching on PE. First 10 EM himself, Justin Morgenstern, on status epilepticus. From the latest episodes, we have Natalie Wolpert and Yona Krakowski teaching you about urologic emergencies. We've got Chris Kiefer, the guy who integrates deliberate practice into the best procedural skill stations I've ever witnessed. He's going to be teaching on how to do crikes with ease. And we'll have lots more surprises. Tickets will go on sale in mid-October. And remember that they historically have sold out very, very quickly. So stay tuned for the exact date of the release of tickets. Okay, now let's hear what Dr. Ciel has to say about Lisfranc injuries. Hi, everyone. Aaron Sale here. We're going to talk about Lisfranc injuries, a relatively uncommon injury. With significant sequelae, and despite it being on almost every EM board exam, uh, it's still missed about 20% of the time in the emergency department. So we'll cover some of the relevant pearls on history, physical exam, imaging, and ED management. To start with, though, the Lisfranc joint really is a series of joints. It's not just a single joint. So it's where the metatarsals meet the cuneiforms and the cuboid. So the base of the metatarsals with the cuneiforms and the cuboid. Generally, the injury is more medial, but it can extend to involve out the lateral aspect. The medial midfoot is really important in walking. It maintains that medial arch, and if it's disrupted, it can cause significant arthritis and pain down the road, especially if we miss it in the emergency department. Uh, as many of us know, Liz Frank was a surgeon in Napoleon's army, and, and the joint takes his name because he did amputations through this joint. 
Most say it was because of soldiers falling off horses with their foot caught in the stirrups. Others say it was because of forefoot infections, and that's what caused the amputation. To be honest with you, I'm not sure because I wasn't there, but either way, his name has been linked to this injury uh, for about a couple of hundred years. In looking after this properly in the emergency department, we need to appreciate that there's a wide spectrum of injury. So you can have high energy cases, you can have relatively low energy cases. It can involve a single joint, or it can involve all the joints across this with various patterns to each. There are obvious x-ray findings, but some are truly radiographically occult. And again, in management, some of them are operative, many are operative, but some can be treated non-operatively. And then as is kind of our thinking in emergency medicine, we're geared to try to pick up these subtle presentations. So how do we pick these up? You won't be surprised to realize that this is actually from the history of the physical. So number one, you need to know the forces. You can have a high energy mechanism that causes a Liz Frank injury. So a fall from a ladder, someone in a motor vehicle collision with their foot being collapsed on the floorboard, that certainly can cause it. But it's also common in sports. Plantar flexion, external rotation is the typical force. So landing a jump awkwardly, if somebody's in a playing football with a cleated shoe, their foot is caught in the turf and then maybe someone piles onto them and that causes the external rotation. Somebody who's windsurfing, their foot is strapped in and if they have an awkward little twist, that can cause uh, a Liz Frank injury. It can also happen with lower energy mechanisms. So the classic story, somebody walking in a park at nighttime, they don't see a hole, they put their foot down, expect the ground, find the hole, And then again, you get the plantar flexion, external rotation. So if you ever hear that story, it's a red flag for a Liz Frank. On physical exam, it's really important to actually examine them. You need to take off both the socks, both the shoes. Look at what normal is like. Look for swelling. Plantar bruising on the medial aspect of the foot is a red flag. And it may be delayed. So if they come into you an hour or two after injury, don't expect to see the plantar bruising. But if they injured a day or two before, look for it. Because if you see it, medial midfoot plantar bruising, that's a red flag. As well, touch them. Dorsally, medially, plantarly. Like the lateral side of the foot, a very common place for injury to occur. But if you see medial foot, plantar, dorsal, along the base of the metatarsals, this should just raise your antenna that, hey, one second, something's going on. This should be a red flag. Patients with the Liz Frank really cannot walk comfortably in your emergency department. They, they may walk on their heel, Uh, typically they're non-weight-bearing, but they won't be walking comfortably. On the x-rays, there are three standard views. So there's an AP, an oblique, and a lateral. For the AP, look carefully for soft tissue swelling. The alignment of the base of the first metatarsal with the medial cuneiform should be perfect. The alignment of the base of the second with the middle cuneiform should be perfect. Look at the gap between the first and the second metatarsal. Look for subtle fractures, typically around the base of the second metatarsal. There can be a tiny little wisp of bone called a flex sign. A little fleck of bone gets avulsed off. So look carefully at this. And what drives you to worry about that is your history and physical. On the oblique, pay close attention to the base of the third and fourth metatarsals because they should align perfectly with the lateral cuneiform and with the cuboid respectively. So look for that on the oblique film. Look for little avulsions at the base of the third and fourth metatarsals. On the lateral film, the base of the first metatarsal should align perfectly with the medial cuneiform. It's a very stable joint, so any subluxation needs to be worrisome. A few other points about x-rays. If you suspect some subtle malalignment on the foot x-ray, consider taking comparison films of the other foot. As well, appreciate that it's possible for the foot to have subluxed, to have reduced anatomically without any bony injury, and to have a purely ligamentous injury with normal alignment, and still be unstable. And in these cases, x-rays and even CT can be normal. So the clinical concern, again, comes from history and physical, and we shouldn't over-rely on imaging. And as a final imaging point, just to drop, forget about doing weight-bearing films in eMERGE. Like, weight-bearing films certainly may reveal subtle widening, but most eMERGE patients are in too much pain to weight-bear properly. So any, quote, weight-bearing views are likely to be suboptimal, unhelpful, and can even be misleading. In terms of eMERGE management, it really gets down to whether the injuries are stable or not. So unstable Lisfranc injuries are operative. Stable Lisfranc injuries may be treated conservatively, which means non-weight-bearing and no operation. So looking at the spectrum of injury, if it's displaced, it's going to be unstable. But if it's undisplaced, it can either be stable or unstable. So we can't just say because it's, it's in good position that it's a stable injury. 
So in the eMERGE department, if you see a Lisfranc injury with marked displacement dislocation, of course, we should image it first. Attempt a reduction in the eMERGE just to protect the soft tissues because they can swell a lot. Then you'd immobilize it with a splint, watch for compartment syndrome, refer to ortho from the emergency department. If it's mildly displaced, then we should splint them and review with ortho from the emergency department at a reasonable hour so they can plan management. Often it's surgical. If it's clinically suspected or anatomic, then a posterior slab, non-weight-bearing, and close follow-up is really what we should be doing. And the decision to operate is based on whether it's stable or not, and that's really hard for us to determine in the emergency department. The definitive test is actually stressing the joints, often as an exam under anesthesia. And these are decisions typically made by the surgeons and not for us in the emergency department. What we need to have is a low threshold for suspecting them. And if you, based on history and physical, you think they've got it, just protect them. CT is generally a management tool for surgical planning. So using it purely diagnostically in the eMERGE can be an issue since there certainly are cases of CT negative, unstable Lisfranc injuries. So in summary, keep these uncommon but worrisome injuries on your differential diagnosis by appreciating the mechanism, examining for swelling, bruising, tenderness, paying close attention to the films but not over-relying on them, review with ortho cases from the eMERGE that are displaced, and protect with a posterior slab, non-weight bearing, and close follow-up those patients that you're worried about. Hope this helps you on your next shift, folks. Thanks a lot. Beautiful summary, Dr. CL. We'll have some images of Lisfranc fractures in the show notes so you can follow along. And now a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Things in emergency medicine have really been under strain and change for the last several months. COVID has exposed weaknesses in our scheduling systems and practices. When staff went off sick or on quarantine, we really saw how thin our rosters were and how every worker and every shift mattered. Whether your ED has lower than usual volumes or higher volumes because of COVID, your old scheduling templates just don't cut it. Through all of this, Metricade has been agile and responsive. Metricade actively participates in the day-to-day reactions to COVID on the workforce. They help modify schedules on the fly, adjusting hours of shifts and daily rosters, and making the most of limited resources. By taking over a lot of the new and complicated administrative burden on managing our schedules during the pandemic, they've shown that they are more than just a scheduling system. They've become true partners in staff health, safety, and satisfaction. Metricade is ready to bring you on board anytime, and I'm confident they'll be able to help us through whatever uncertainty lies ahead. Next up is Justin Morgenstern on the evidence for dexamethasone for COVID pneumonia. Now, this just might be the best evidence we have for an effective medical treatment to date. Have we finally found a cure for COVID? No, no, we haven't. But dexamethasone certainly looks like it could have a role. In case you've been living under a rock and somehow not heard about this trial, I figured we better quickly recover the results of the recovery trial. And we might as well lead with the most exciting information. Mortality was lower in the dexamethasone group. Dex might save lives. So what was this trial? Well, recovery is a really big RCT out of 176 different hospitals in the United Kingdom. They're actually testing a bunch of different potential treatments for COVID, things like convalescent plasma, azithromycin, remdesivir. So everybody with COVID gets randomized to one of those treatment arms or control. Most of those treatment arms are still ongoing, and we're going to hear a lot more from this trial soon, but we have data about dexamethasone now. So this trial looks at hospitalized patients with suspected or confirmed COVID. They started with just adults, but they've actually opened it up to all age groups at this point. For the dexamethasone portion, patients were excluded if the physician thought they had a medical condition that would put them at high risk from taking dexamethasone. So this trial includes more than 6,000 patients. 2,000 took dexamethasone, 6 milligrams a day, either orally or intravenously, and there are 4,000 controls. Now, one of the big issues with this trial is that the control group is unblinded usual care. This is not a blinded, placebo-controlled trial, and that significantly increases the chance of bias. That being said, 
the primary outcome was all-cause mortality. And that's a pretty objective outcome, and so that helps mitigate some of that bias. And importantly, all-cause mortality was lower in the dexamethasone group. 21.6% versus 24.6%, statistically significant, a number needed to treat of 33. The subgroups are really interesting. You get a really big mortality benefit in patients on mechanical ventilation and ECMO. You get a moderate benefit in patients requiring oxygen. And actually, mortality was higher although not statistically so, if you gave dexamethasone to patients who didn't need oxygen. That probably makes sense. We know that there are multiple phases to COVID. Early on, you get a lot of viral replication, but you're not that sick. You don't need oxygen yet. And steroids in that phase could be harmful by decreasing the immune system and allowing more viral replication. Later on, the effects of the immune system predominate. We see that cytokine storm and steroids make a lot of sense. That theory is somewhat supported by the fact that in this trial, patients with less than seven days of symptoms had no benefit, but those with more than seven days of symptoms did. So what do we do with all these numbers? Well, I think this trial is clearly a game changer. We are seeing a believable decrease in all-cause mortality. We should start using DEX. Does that mean that we know for sure that DEX helps? Absolutely not. This is an unblinded trial with high risk of bias. These results could be wrong. We clearly need follow-up RCTs. We can't just declare that this is over. But while we wait for more science, the results are convincing enough and DEX is safe enough that it makes sense to just start treating. The real question is what to make of the subgroups. I always caution against putting too much faith in subgroups. However, these subgroups are exactly what we expected. The sickest patients are the ones that need steroids. And the hint at potential increased mortality if we use steroids in the wrong population. So I think it's worth paying attention to the subgroups. Personally, I will prescribe dexamethasone to all COVID patients who I'm admitting if they require oxygen. If you don't need oxygen, I think the results suggest that we should hold back. There's one really big caveat though. Apparently in the UK, oxygen is recommended for patients with SATs between 92 and 94%. I would never put oxygen on those patients, but in this trial, they would have been included in the oxygen therapy group. So I will use DEX for patients who need oxygen right now and those with borderline saturations who may need oxygen in the coming days. Again, this is an unblinded trial, and unblinded trials can easily mislead us. But these results are exciting, and DEX is a relatively safe and cheap medication. If these results are true, treating has the potential to save thousands of lives in the next year. So I think it makes sense to start treating now. But stay skeptical and keep your eyes out for new studies as they're published. I just want to take a moment to thank all the researchers out there who have been working 24-7 to find an effective treatment for COVID pneumonia. Your efforts really are paying off. So thank you. Okay, last but not least, while I was at the last ASEP conference, I asked my friend and colleague, the one and only Walter Himmel, to tell us his approach to giving consults and dealing with difficult consultants in the ED. You certainly won't find this in any medical textbook. I rather enjoy talking to consultants. It's always a challenge. It's always fun. In fact, I've gotten to the point where if it's too easy, I feel disappointed. I'm sure not all of you feel the way about it. So let's talk about consultations. If you're an eMERGE doctor, in fact, if you're a human being, you're making and asking for consultations all the time. It's inevitable. It's an essential job skill. So I'll tell you what I do. It's taking a long time to figure this out, but it's quite lovely. First of all, some general principles. It's not about you, it's about the patient. It's not a war, it's not a battle. I don't want to win the battle. I don't want to win the war but I do want the consultant to see the patient. If they're reasonable, if they're fun, if they're pleasant, all the better. If they're not, it doesn't matter. 
It's not about me. It's about the patient, and it's about efficiency. Minimal emotional cost for maximal benefit. So what do I do? Well, first and foremost, don't be a slob. Do your homework. Before you pick up the phone, ask yourself, do I know exactly why I'm making this referral? Now, there's only two reasons to make a referral. Number one, you're not sure what the patient has. Well, that's almost never the reason you make a referral. Let's face it. Generally speaking, you do know what's going on. The only reason you're making a referral 99% of the time is you want the patient admitted. So you've got to be clear in your mind, why does the patient have to be admitted? There's only a couple of reasons if you've done your homework. A, you're too sick to go home. What does that mean? Their oxygen levels are too low. They can't walk. They can't eat. They can't drink water. They can't sit. Well, how can you possibly know that unless you've assessed it? Their social situation is a disaster. They're street people. Uh, Their spouses, disabled and elderly. They haven't got a car. They have no way to get home, and they're sick. If you haven't done your homework, how will you know that? Do your homework. Not just your physiology about the patient, but the social history is phenomenally important. Ask the patient, can you go home? Ask the patient's family, do you think your spouse or your father or your child can go home? Know in advance if they can go home or not and know all the reasons they can or they can't. And be prepared to tell the consultant all those reasons only if they ask. Be prepared. So the consultant calls you back. What's the first thing you say? Well, if it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon and they're in a good mood, (laughs) no problem. Say whatever you want. But let's say it's 2 o'clock in the morning or it's a resident and it's 4 o'clock in the morning or it's a consultant who's a difficult person. What do you say? You say, thank you for calling. Let's say they're very unhappy. Should you apologize for calling? Uh, Some people apologize. I never do. A, I don't like apologizing for stuff I haven't done. And B, it's a very limp way of dealing with things. People are sick of apologies. But when you say, thank you for calling, what can the consultant possibly say? The most they can say is, oh yeah? And that's about it. Most people will be disarmed when you thank them for calling. Next thing, if it's not going well, or if you think it might not go well, I often say, I need your help with this 45-year-old patient. When you ask someone for help, it's extraordinarily difficult for them to say no. So I thank them, I say, I need your help, then I give a history and a physical and the reason they can't go home. This is not grand rounds. The history, the physical, and the reason they can't go home lasts about 20 to 30 seconds. I've got a 45-year-old man with shortness of breath because of heart failure and anemia, and he can't go home because he's still short of breath after maximal treatment, or he can't go home because he's unable to sit up or stand, Or he can't go home because his 85-year-old wife is unable to look after him. That's the whole history. The history includes the person, their age, the diagnosis, and why they can't go home. That's it. That's a 25-second history. So thank them for calling. Tell them you need their help. And tell them the history, the physical, and the reason not going home in about 25 seconds. Generally speaking, 99 times out of 100... It's all done. Okay, it didn't work. One time in a hundred, the consultant's nasty, tired, exhausted, irritable. What do you do? They start yelling or complaining or whining or assaulting you for calling them two o'clock in the morning with this useless referral. Here's what you do. Listen. Don't say a word. Listen to their complaints completely. How long will they complain for? Five seconds? 10 seconds, 20 seconds, that's about it. They'll really go on longer. When they're finished, what do you do? Pause. Don't say a word for a second or two. When there's been complete silence and they've burnt out, here's what I say. I validate them. I say, yep, I understand what you're saying, but I need your help. That doesn't go well. Listen again and say, I hear what you're saying. I'm not comfortable sending the patient home. The consultant is screaming. The consultant is yelling. They want to fight. What do you do? Surprise them. 
don't fight. Complete silence for 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, 40 seconds. A fight requires energy. A fight requires fuel. A fight requires two people. Listen quietly. And after five seconds, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, it never lasted more, the consultant will burn out. Silence is the answer to being attacked. When someone attacks, they expect a counterattack. Do not counterattack. Be totally silent. That's called the pause. And when the pause is completed and the consultant is stopped, here's exactly what you say. I hear you. I need your help. Another beautiful line that I love, and I hate when it's done to me, is this line. And here's what it is once again. I'm not comfortable sending the patient home. What's the consultant going to do? They're either going to get it and see the patient, or they're going to think you're an idiot and see the patient, or they're going to think you're feeble and see the patient. But they're going to see the patient. Because if you're not comfortable, what are they going to say? You should be comfortable? Yeah, they could say that. That would be the most brilliant response from a consultant, wouldn't it be? Well, why aren't you comfortable? And the answer to that question is, well, I'm not comfortable. It's called a broken record technique. Don't engage in a conversation. Use the broken record technique. I'm not comfortable. The most pathological consultant will be thinking in their mind, this person is an idiot. This person is a wimp. But after saying three times, I'm not comfortable, the consultant will realize this broken record will go on forever. They will see the patient. This has never failed me. I'll tell you what I never do. I never counterattack. I never tell them they're on call. I never tell them it's their job to see patients. Why would I say the obvious? It's boring and ineffective. Once every 5, 10, 15 years, you will fail. The consultant will say no. So here's what I do. If I haven't done my homework, I go back and do my homework. If I have done it, I say, well, I hear what you're saying. So I'll reassess the patient. I'll speak to the family. I'll get some more information. But I want you to know I may be calling you back in a few minutes. That's my last line. And it's quite effective. One of two things will happen. Almost always, the consultant will know they're defeated and they'll come and see the patient. Occasionally, they'll hang up. Now, why is that a good thing to say? I may be calling you back. It's because you are going to call them back. You've prepared them for the phone call. They will not sleep until you call back because they're not going to call back. And when you call back, it's going to go well. It's going to be brief and your problem is over. Now, one more warning. Is this easy to do? No. Now, the expression, don't take it personally, I find very irritating, but I just said it. So how in the world do you not take it personally? And here's what I've discovered. If you're empathetic, you will take nothing personally. What does empathetic mean? Does it mean you feel sorry for the consultant? No. Here's what it means. It means you've got a realistic view of the world. You're aware the consultant is tired, or exhausted, or has a personality defect, you accept them for what they are. Once you've done that, you will tend to take it less personally. You'll be prepared, and you'll focus on the negotiation, and there's only one goal in mind. Get what you want, and the corollaries are, keep it simple, save your energy, carry on, and reframe it. Become an expert negotiator, and you've just had some great practice with this consultant. Brilliant. All right, let's review. So what have we learned on this EM Quick Hits? First, we learned from Salim Rizé that TXA for acute GI bleeds ain't great. In fact, it might be harmful. We learned from Sarah Reed that we don't have to be so judicious with fluids in pediatric DKA. It's almost always safe to start your resuscitation with 10 cc's per kilogram normal saline bolus. We learned from Hans Rosenberg that there might be a role for POCUS in the diagnosis and in the reduction of posterior shoulder dislocations, but usually the reason we miss the diagnosis is because we don't do a thorough history and physical. 
Remember that the most common mechanism of injury is an awkward fall with internal rotation of the shoulder, even though electrical injury or seizure are the ones we see in textbooks all the time. And on physical, if they're locked in internal rotation, so they have a mechanical block to external rotation, that's your big clue to a posterior shoulder dislocation. Of course, when in doubt, get an axillary view x-ray. Moving on, we learned from Aaron Seyal that the mechanism for Lisfranc injuries can be high energy or low energy, and it's usually plantar flexion with external rotation, whether that's an MVC, landing a jump awkwardly in sports, or simply stepping into a hole in the ground. The big physical exam clue is medial plantar bruising, which you won't always see, but if you do see it, that's a slam dunk. And we often miss this one because we don't bother to look at the bottom of the foot. Tenderness on the dorsal midfoot plus a plantar bruise is pretty much a Lisfranc injury until proven otherwise. On x-rays, scrutinize the base of the metatarsals like a hawk, looking for subtle misalignment, looking for gaps, and looking for flake fractures. And remember that even undisplaced Lisfranc injuries can be unstable, so speak to your orthopedic surgeon to help guide management. Next, we learned from Justin Morgenstern that for patients with presumed COVID pneumonia, those that require oxygen, and even the borderline ones with a SAT of 92 or 93 or 94%, for those patients, dexamethasone is probably your best bet for medical treatment. And finally, Dr. Himmel hit us with his consulting tips. Do your homework, zero in on why the patient needs admission, Use the pause and the broken record techniques if you're faced with an angry consultant and tell them you'll call them back in a few minutes as a last resort. Well, that about wraps it up. If all goes well, we'll be opening registration for the 2021 EM Cases course in mid-October. I hope to see you there, even if you'll be wearing a mask. 